Amen. You can all be seated. You can all be seated. So how's everybody this morning? Everybody good? Y'all ready for some word now? I mean, we've already had it through the music, through the prayer. We've had it through the fellowship. And I want to talk to you about this morning is from the book of Nehemiah. And, you know, preaching series like this and going through God's word. And now we're in Nehemiah 7. So I'm going to give you another chance to find it there. Um, when we do this, it's, it's often, it's, sometimes it's hard because you're, you're, you're trying to focus on book, a book of the Bible or a theme in the Bible or whatever it might be that you're preaching in a, in a sermon series. It's kind of hard sometimes to apply it to where you are right now as a church or as individuals or just where, where we are as a whole in God's church and God's family. So sometimes it's kind of hard to steer it in that direction. But this morning it was pretty easy because a lot of the things that I see going on in the church today, not just here but around the globe, um, can, be, can be fixed and, and can be repaired. Uh, some things that go wrong in the church, nothing is perfect, and churches around the world are not perfect. But if we look at the servanthood of Nehemiah, it seems like every week it pertains to exactly what we're going through every week. And that's not always easy to do when you're preaching a sermon series. But today, even more than ever, as a matter of fact, as I was studying for this sermon right here, I learned so much about different cultures and different things that God had shown me not really that I learned about what they did specifically, but how I appreciated different cultures and the different ways people did things just by studying this chapter right here this past week. I've never preached out of the book of Nehemiah chapter 7 before. I preached out of other, out of other uh, chapters in Nehemiah, but never chapter 7. And it really gave me a newfound respect for a lot of ways that different cultures and different people do things because they're important to their people. And it really opened my eyes to see some of the things that I saw and studied on and, re and God revealed to me through Nehemiah chapter 7. But it also, God took it and turned it into what it means for the church today, what it means for the communities that we live in today and where our churches are located. We exist here, uh, first and foremost, we all exist as people to glorify God. We know that. We exist to make disciples of other people. That's what we do. But the local church exists for the community. And we can look at a lot of churches and we can see people in and churches and communities and we can see people that come from all over to go to these churches, but they're not necessarily from the community and that's okay too, but they can still serve that community. And a lot of times what we don't do is we don't take ownership in our own communities that we go to church in and the people that we're trying to assist because God will lead us to a lot of different places and we know that. He doesn't necessarily lead us to a church in our own community, right there where we live, but sometimes he leads us to other churches. And that's not true for, any, for everybody. Most people stay really close to where their, their community is so that they can serve their church in their community. And what we see Nehemiah doing was he went back to where his roots were to be able to serve the people there in Jerusalem. And in chapter 7, as we're going to read it, I'm going to read the first part, we're going to skip a lot, we're going to read the last part, and then I'm going to come back in the middle of the sermon, we're going to read the middle part. And I'm going to do that for a specific reason, because I want us to understand, uh, one, that leadership in the local church is, is absolutely important for the leadership of the community. Leadership in the church has to be established and it has to be adhered to so that the community... Uh, is taken care of. And not only that, but we have to take citizenship in our community. And that's another thing I want to look at this morning. We have to take citizenship of not only who we are, but where we're serving. And lastly, we need to reestablish our worship. We need to get back into worshiping God so that the community can understand that and see that. Now, I know a lot of people think well, as soon as we say worship, we immediately mean music. 
And I think we've done ourselves a great disservice in the last 10 or 15 years because we associate worship with music. Music is not just worship. There are a lot of different aspects of worship than just music. Now, music plays a vital, important role, and I'm going to point that out to you when we talk about the singers here in chapter 7. It plays an important role of worship, but it's not the only thing. We tend to forget that worship is, is so much more than just singing or playing. It's also uh, in other things that I'll point out in the third point of this sermon this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 7. I wanted to get that out there because that's really my introduction. I wanted to do that before we got into God's Word so that we can really see the meat of what God's trying to tell us in our churches today for our communities. Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 1. I know you found it, so say amen. amen. Say amen again. It sounded good. Let's stand at our feet in the, in the honor of reading of God's Word this morning. It says in verse 1, When the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than any. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post, and each in front of his own house. Now the city gate, or the city, was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Now let's stop right there. Let's look, go all the way down to verse 70. Verse 70. And we're going to continue reading there. And verse 70 is what it says. From among the heads of fathers' households, they gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priests' garments. Some of the heads of fathers' households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minas. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priests' garments. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll, that you'll take this scripture this morning and what we've read, Father, and that you'll pull it all together for us so that we can understand the meaning from, from verse 1 all the way through verse 73 this morning, Father, so that we can really understand what it means, Father, for the church to, to be upright, to be righteous within the community so that the future of the community can be reestablished, Father. Sometimes, Father, we need to reestablish things. Sometimes our own churches need to be reestablished. We need to be revitalized. We need to be rejuvenated, Father. And I'm asking that this morning that you use Nehemiah chapter 7 to do that first in our minds so that we understand the importance of continuing your work as children of yours, Father. The work that you have called us to, Father. May it become very real to us this morning. May it, may it mean more than anything than it's ever meant in our lives before, Father, so that we know exactly where you're taking us, so that we know who we're serving and why we're serving them, Father. And ultimately, may you receive the glory through all of our service. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. Now, I want, I want to look at three things that Nehemiah did. He reestablished three things in Jerusalem once the wall was built. Now, we've, we've looked at turmoil, we've looked at opposition, we've looked at persecution, we've looked at, at all kind of people 
that were persecuting the work and trying to stop the work of the wall being built. We've, we've seen that. And, and last week in chapter 6, it seems to have escalated more than anything in, in, in chapter 6 that you learned about last week. In, in chapter 7, now that the work is done... The threat is still there. The threat is just as evident as ever. It's just as hard as ever. The threat of the enemy trying to come in um, is still there. Nothing has gone away. The enemy was still going to try to defeat them, was going to try to get in, was going to try to breach their walls. So not all was safe, but it was safer. The people were learning to work together, to live together a little bit more, and Nehemiah had come in and set these guidelines and set these parameters for them to live by to help reestablish their city. And he started with the walls. And when the walls were finished, he reestablished three things. And the first one was this. He reestablished the leadership in the city. He reestablished the leadership in that city. And, and what I mean by that, in the very first few verses of chapter 7, is, is what he did was he reestablished, first of all, he reestablished some ministry leaders. You see that in, in verse 1 and 2, uh, the wall was rebuilt. He set up the doors. The gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. So he had set some ministries up in place. He had set some ministry leaders in place. He set the Levites in place who had their various duties. And, of course, the priests came from the Levite tribe. And he reestablished the priests in their work that they were doing inside the temple. He was reestablishing the leadership because now that the walls were built and they were safer, there had to be leadership in place. Had to be. And if you notice that the people were listening to the leadership, they were, the, the leadership wasn't taking advantage of them, but they weren't taking advantage of the leadership, and everyone was working together. In fact, Nehemiah's leader, who he was trying to convey to the people, which, which a lot of our churches are trying to convey to people today, is that the leader has always and always will be God. It's not the pastor, it's not the deacons, it's not the teachers, it's not the choir, it's not the singers. It is God who leads the church. But he had reestablished some ministry leaders there. He put the, the Levites in place and all their various duties, and he put the singers in place, and they were very important. We're going to look at those in just a moment. The singers were put in place because it was very vital to their worship time, which we'll look at in the third part. But he put them in place because the singers played a very important role in their worship. He also not only set up the ministry leaders, but he also set up guards. Look what it says in verse 2. He says, I put Hananiah, my brother, and, uh, Hananiah, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. These two men were in charge of everything. They answered only to Nehemiah himself. And it wasn't, that, it, it wasn't a, 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 a type of situation where, where Nehemiah had to, where he was uh, hogging all the authority and people only could answer to him and the only thing that could be done was through him. No, he had set up the ministry leaders. He had set up uh, uh, the, the effort to rebuild the wall. They looked to him as their leader. But Nehemiah always insisted that God was the leader. So they would answer to Nehemiah. Now listen to what he did. He put guards on top of the wall. This is very common back then. It wasn't something that he'd just come up with. He put, he put uh, guards on top of the wall in various places. The walls were generally wide enough to where you could walk on them. Uh, some walls and some bigger fortresses actually had, they were wide enough for you to even ride a chariot on top of them. And, and, uh, and, and I'm sure that that was the case in places with this wall here. I don't exactly know, and I haven't looked at the, at the size. I'm not sure if they had any chariots, but the, he placed men on top of the wall in various places. And what he says is, is that he placed these men 
strategically. It, it wasn't done just tear him, scare him. He just didn't get a, a bunch of people up there, didn't know what they were doing, and say, you know what, I'm going to put you over here, I'm going to put you over here. In fact, when, when these two men were set up, Hananiah and Hananiah, they were in charge of the main fortress, the citadel, which sat on the north side. I wish I had a picture of it, I'd show you, but it was on the north side of the wall of Jerusalem, which was most vulnerable to attack because that's, that's where their citadel was because uh, it was a low-lying area, it was easier to attack, so they made their strongest fortress at the north end of this. And this is where these two men, this was kind of their, their headquarters. This is kind of where they worked out of. This is where Hananiah had already been working out of. And the people and the guards that he put on the walls, he, he put them in strategic places near their homes. Now, I explained to you this once before that Nehemiah put people to work on the wall near their homes. You remember why, don't you? Because they would work harder at, at, at enforcing their wall and reinforcing the wall where they lived because they wanted their house protected. So he knew that they would build the wall to the best of their ability if he put them near their own home. And now he was putting them in charge near their own home to keep night. They had a neighborhood watch going on that was, I mean, like makes our neighborhood watches look minuscule. He put uh, guard gates, he, he put uh, uh, guards at the gates, he gives them specific instructions in verse 3. If you, if you see and remember what I read there, he says, uh, he says in verse 7, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 3, don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. See, at night, they have to be closed. I mean, that's a no-brainer, we all know that. People can sneak in at night. You know, it wasn't a modern-day time where we had street lights and floodlights and everything else that was lighting up everything. This was in a day and time when things were dark. They didn't have light and modern technology like they do today. People could sneak in, so the gates were to be locked at night. And he says, during the day, when the sun is hot, don't wait, don't, don't do it too early. You wait until the sun is hot. That means what? The sun has already risen. That means there's plenty of light on the land. Then you can open up the gates for the people to come and go as they please. You didn't want to make them prisoners in their own city. That would have defeated the purpose of them being under captivity. So he placed the gatekeepers up there. These were important men because they had to be trusted. They needed to be faithful men. They needed to be men that feared God. And look what it says in the, in the rest of uh, verse 2. In verse 2, listen to what it says about these two men. Faithful men, and they feared God more than many. So these were faithful men. They, they loved God. They had to be trusted. You don't understand, and, and I went back, and, I, and I, I had learned this a long time ago, and I really wasn't all that familiar with it, but do you know at least four times the Great Wall of China was breached by bribery? By bribery. It said the wall was in, impenetrable. You could not get past it. But at least four times, and I believe all four times, I believe were before Genghis Khan actually came along, um, if, if I'm remembering correctly in my reading, that four times the guards were bribed. These men had to be trusted. They had to be God-fearing men. He couldn't just put anybody up there. That's why when God calls you to a ministry, He calls you to a ministry that you're equipped and that you're knowledgeable about. He calls you to something that He knows you can do. And now when I say ministry, people get scared. But we hear that word, we think music. We hear the word ministry, we think we all got to be preachers or teachers and we have to be evangelists. That's, that's not it. You, you might just be in the serving people, just helping them. Being an ear to listen to. Maybe God has called you to do something, a specific thing in the church or in your community or for a non-profit organization, something that God is leading you to. It doesn't necessarily mean a preaching ministry. 
But God has called you to something. And He's asking you to use that. He's asking you to do that. And these men were chosen to be these gatekeepers. He also put the assistants in order, which I just showed you. That was Hananiah and Hananiah. They were in charge and they reported to Nehemiah. But this is, and, and all together, you take all these people, they have one thing in common, which is the next, which is, 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 is the next uh, uh, point in reestablishing leadership. They were faithful servants. All of them were faithful. In order for the church to be effective in the community, the servants within the church must be faithful. They must do what God has instructed them to do. If they don't do what God has instructed them to do, their ministry will not thrive. The ministry will not, will not grow. And that specific ministry will begin to wilter and it will begin to die out. Eventually, if all that happens to all the ministries in the church, the church will die. It is vitally important that each servant of God, no matter what you do, be faithful to doing what he called you to do. The second thing that he did was he reestablished the leadership, but then he reestablished the citizenship. Now, this is the part where I told you we're going to go back and read something. And I'm going to read it on purpose because we tend to forget these things. I want you to open your Bibles back up. I want you to look with me at verse 5. At verse 5. And I want you to bear with me for just a moment as we read what we think is going to be pretty boring. Let's read together. In verse verse 5. Then God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of of those who came up first in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Remaiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, Baana, the number of men of the people of Israel, <clears throat> the sons of Perosh, 2,172, the sons of Shepatiah, 372, the sons of Era, 652, the sons of Pahath, Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Eli, Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zukai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bibai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikim, 667. The sons of Bigavai, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Ater of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Harith, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Nepetoth, uh, uh, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath, Jiriam, Sephariah, and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of, o, of other Nebo, of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Harim, 
320. The men of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadad and Ono, 721. The sons of Sena'ah, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jediah and the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emer. 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, of Kadmiel, of the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ator, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobiah, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hashupa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalami, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rehiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Peashia, the sons of Besai, the sons of Menuhim, the sons of Nephusheshim, uh, forgive me on that pronunciation, the sons of Bakuk, the sons of Hepufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bazilth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harasha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tama, the sons of Nezaiah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotiah. Uh, the sons of uh, Zophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jaala, the sons of Darkan, the sons of Gideel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokahurath, Hazabaim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. These were they who came up from Tel Malala, Tel Harasha, Sherub, Adon, and Emir. And they could not show their father's houses of their descendants, which they were of Israel. So the sons and the sons of Delaiah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Of the priest of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, that then took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the, Gilead, the Gileadite, and was named after them. These researched, are these searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located, therefore they were considered unclean, and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly arose together, 42,360, besides their male and their female servants, of whom were 7,337, and they had 245 male and female singers. There were horses, were 736, their mules, 245. Uh, some of them, uh, the camels, 435, their donkeys, 6,720. Now, Pastor, why did you just bore me to absolute, just boredom by reading numbers? There's a very important reason. Several years ago, we had some firemen that gave their lives in the Sofa Superstore. And it was our goal to never forget some men and women gave their lives at Mother Emanuel Church just a few years back, and we honored them by not forgetting their names. And yet we'll breeze over the names of the men that have worked so hard to make Jerusalem what they were. This list was read by Ezra about a hundred years earlier. 
And here it's being read, read again. God had laid it upon Nehemiah's heart to take a census of these people. There's a very important reason why God included these numbers. And as he does in many other, in many of the other books in the Bible, is because it shows their citizenship. Your citizenship and your heritage has a lot to do with where you're headed. And it was no different for the Jews. In fact, God felt it was very important that each Jew remember where they came from. If you remember in verse 64 here, there were some people that had lost their genealogy tree. They, they had lost sight of where they were from and they were Levites, but they were not allowed to serve as priests because they could not prove their citizenship. They couldn't prove it. Now you go to a foreign country today and you can't prove your citizenship within their country, you'll be rejected, won't you? Their citizenship was very important. It spoke to who they were and where they're going. There was the genealogy importance. It was important to the Jews because it was important to God. It was important for God that his people knew where they came from. The Levites must have been able to prove their genealogy. And as we've already looked at, they were left out because of that. The Jews knew where they came from and they were trusted because they were proud of their heritage. They were proud of their heritage. Therefore, they would do whatever it took to protect not just their past, but more importantly, their future and their family's future. Next time you read all these boring numbers, remember that they're there for a reason and not just to fill the pages in God's Word. They're for a reason. Their citizenship was important. They couldn't know where they were going until they could learn where they've been. They, couldn't, they, they didn't know what mistakes to make unless they, unless they studied the mistakes and the shortcomings of the past. It was very important to them. And, and did I mention, it was very important to them. Now why am I saying this? Why is the, where, where is the genealogy connection? I looked at the genealogy importance. Let's look at the connection. Each, genera each generation is connected to the next. When one generation ceases to concern themselves with the former generation, then the future generation will not know their heritage. It will be cut off right there. It's equally important for the church family to know and understand the past so they can assure the church's future. We must know the citizenship of what family we come from in our own church to be effective for the community. The younger generation must know and respect what the past generation has done to preserve the church that we worship in today. Younger generation, we need to love and respect the hard work and the dedication that the older generation has put in. Older generation, you must know and accept where, future, where the future generation is taking the church for the teaching of the gospel and to trust that they will continue the work of the Lord no matter what it might look like. It's very important that each generation love and respect the former and the next generation. And then there's the genealogy of the future. Knowing our past will encourage us to teach the future generation how to carry on the church. And as the church carries on, the community will not suffer. I hope I've made myself very clear on the citizenship that we've undertaken. And more importantly, the citizenship that we have with God in heaven. If we're here today and we don't know Christ as our Savior, then we are not citizens of heaven. You are not citizens of heaven. I'm not here to say that offensively. I'm here to say it truthfully and lovingly. If you're not a citizen of heaven, you will not go to heaven. That's something that you need to evaluate on your own and ask God what really, where you really stand in your relationship with Him. 
So he reestablished and let them know where they came from. He reestablished the leadership and he reestablished their citizenship to let them know how important their work was for the future generation of the Hebrews, of the Israelites. What do you want to leave when you leave this church? If you get called away because of business, if you get called away because of work or family or for a sickness and you no longer can, can serve here, will the church continue? Will you have done all you can for the church to go into the future? If God decides to take you home and you no longer exist in this world and God calls you home to heaven, have you taught the younger, younger generation how to, to carry it on to the future? Younger generation... Do we know enough to carry it into the future? Do we know how to make this church last? Do we know how to make the community thrive through these four walls? The last thing that he did was he reestablished the worship in Jerusalem. It's very important. All three of these things are very important. There's three things that he reestablished that we'll look at. There was a lot more, but under these three umbrellas, there's, there's a lot more. He reestablished their worship. We looked at that down in verse 70. Down in verse 70 where we read it earlier, we see that we see in verse 70 that they began to give. The governor gave to the treasury a hundred a, a thousand drachmas. That's 19 pounds of gold. Could you imagine having 19 pounds of gold? I, I don't know what 19 pounds of gold would look like. People were giving to the cause. They were giving to the leaders, not so that the leaders could line their pockets, but so that they could serve the people. It goes on to say in verse 70 that they also gave 50 basins, 530 priests' garments. Some of the heads of the father's household gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, or 375 pounds of gold. That's a lot of money. 2,200 silver, silver minas, which is about 2,800 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. It says that, it says that others, that the rest of the people, they also gave 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minas and 67 priest garments. All the other people did. These, these first group that we mentioned were, were, were dignitaries. They were a little bit more, um, uh, they were a little bit more wealthy. If the rest of the people, look what they gave to the work of the church. So they gave of their offerings. They gave of their tithes for the work of the church, for the good of the community, and for the good of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was their community. It was their city. And the next thing that he reestablished in their worship was he reestablished their efforts. We can go over the last few weeks that Brian's been preaching and I've been preaching and see all the work that the people put into rebuilding the wall and reestablishing their city. So they gave with their efforts. They gave with their time. They gave with their talents. They gave with their abilities. They gave with their backs and their legs and their hands and their strength and their passion and their emotions, everything was poured out for the good of the people so that the community would survive and that this community could be saved. 
And the last thing that they put in was their time. You see, when we come to church, worship is not just music and it's not just giving, but it's also time. It's also work. If God has called you to a ministry and you've not put in the time and you've not put in the effort, then don't blame God and don't blame the church and certainly don't blame the community. Are we willing to do what it takes to reestablish our own church and to reestablish the community? Musicians, you can come forward. Are we willing to do what it takes to do that? Are we committed to do that? When things get hard and they get tough and it's not so easy what we're doing and we've got a lot of other responsibilities, are we willing to work through it? Are we willing to do what God has called us to do? This community is dying. Our churches are dying. Because Christians are walking away. Because it's too hard. It's too hard. I wonder. I wonder why we don't walk away from our jobs when they get too hard. I mean, I know the reason. You know the reason. But I don't care if it's for $100,000 a year, $50,000 a year, or 20,000 drachmas, which is 375 pounds. No amount of money is worth quitting your job over when you need to survive. Why would we quit God? Why would we give up on God? So please don't give up on God. Let's reestablish the church and reestablish this community. Think about it.